Welcome to Love Doesn't Pay the Bills. I'm Lisa Chudy. I'm joined today by Carlin Maddox, who was a caregiver for his wife. Welcome, Carlin. Thank you very much, Lisa. Nice to be talking with you and, and your, uh, your friends and your audience. Thank you. And so can you briefly describe a summary of your caregiving experiences? Yeah, um, I mean, the reason reason I'm here and uh, the reason I wrote a book was uh, back uh, in 1997, a long time ago now, uh, my wife, Martha, was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, and she had just turned 50 uh, about three weeks earlier, and um, our three children were still in college and high school. I was 52 years old. If I had heard of Alzheimer's, I just don't remember it. I certainly had not been paying any attention to what Alzheimer's was. As I reflect back on that time period, I I considered it to be something of the dark ages. Even though Alzheimer's was discovered by Dr. Aloya Alzheimer's back in 1910 or something like that, uh, as far as the medical community um, and general audience, general community, uh, uh, it just wasn't being paid much attention to, and certainly not somebody who was age 50 years old. And um, so when Martha was diagnosed um, and we got the word of this, our world did not turn upside down, Lisa. It imploded before us. I was in the middle. I, I I had a um, a business magazine here in the Tampa Bay, Florida market that I had um, been running for uh, 14 or 15 years at that point. And Martha had been um, previously been on the St. Petersburg City Council in, in Florida back in the 80s. Uh, the year before her diagnosis, she had run for an open seat in the Florida State Legislature. She was very involved. She was very energetic. Her energy level was twice mine. Uh, kept me on my toes, uh, and um, and just was just a loving person to be around and, and talk smack with, and just with high <laughs> energy. Mm-hmm. You and, beat me um, to the uh, the next question I was going to ask is what did you love about your your wife? Um, yeah, well, that there, you were caring uh, Obviously, for. a lot of things. Our marriage, like any marriage, was not perfect. We got into arguments and whatever else, but um, we usually able to clear those up. And any problems that we came across, either me in my career or Martha in her career or we in our marriage, we ultimately seemed to be able to resolve somehow. But suddenly we were facing a, a wall that we just didn't know how to resolve. And um, and when when we got the, got the uh, diagnosis and got home, Martha, well, we both had a big long cry once we got home. Of course. And, and um, then Martha looked at me straight in the eye and said, I do not want to tell a soul. I don't want, I don't want to tell our children. I don't want to tell my parents. I don't want to tell my brothers. And I certainly don't want to tell our friends. 
And uh, that was end of story. And, um, and that I attribute that as I look back on it, just to the stigma that's often associated with mental issues and, and the like. And she thought she was not being, uh, that, that nobody was recognizing any kind of problem with her at that point, even though we had been seeing something for a year or so and been taking, been trying for a year to get Martha into talk to a neurologist and go through some testing and the like, but it took us that long. And, um, but uh, Martha was still fully capable of talking. She was, she was still driving. Uh, she was, um, still like to get out in the woods and go hiking and whatever. And, um, um, so everything generally was okay, except there were just these moments that just, didn't make sense. Um, I, I, I do remember that when Martha was running for the Florida State Legislature, this would have been in, in 1996, um, that uh, she had um, she had uh, she was on she was in a um, campaign forum with three other uh, three other candidates. And, uh, I'd seen Martha in that kind of situation many, many times, but this was the most important forum for that campaign race. And, um, that day, Martha had to ask for every question to be repeated. This was a year before she was diagnosed. She had to ask for every question to be repeated. And when she, um, did respond, the answers were off about 10 to 15 degrees. They just didn't make quite quite sense to me. And uh, I got home and we got home and I asked Martha, I said, what was going on up there? And she said, what are you talking about? I thought it went well. And uh, that's when we began to suspect something, what we didn't know. Yeah, it sounds like that was a a big change where that was a lot different than how you had seen her in the yeah. in the past before that? Yeah, I mean, she 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 had been speaking publicly for well for a number of years. She had been a teacher in high school back in the um, early seventies, and she had been uh, in a, in our marriage during our marriage. She had been on the city council here for six years, and so she was very cool, calm, and collected out in the public forum. But this day, she just was flustered and. Didn't make it in one, just a one-time fluster. It was just every question. And that, that just didn't make any sense. And, um, so that's, that's a quick background on where we started. Um, the, when, when Martha said, I do not want to talk to a soul, there was one person that she was willing to talk to who was a retired minister that Martha had been friends with when she was teaching here at St. Petersburg High School. And uh, he, he had married us and baptized a couple of our kids. And um, That sounds like someone she trusted a lot. Yeah. Why? She knew him and he, trusted him a lot, it sounds like. Yeah, he trusted him a lot. And, uh, and she said, I would be willing to talk to Lacey. And so I called Lacey, and he came the next day just pronto. And uh, we broke the news to him, and... Um, he, he was sitting beside Martha with his big arms. He, Lacey was a big guy, 6'4", 260 pounds, and um, with his arm around Martha. And uh, the, we all, again, had a big cry. 
And it was then that he said, you know, I have a good friend up in Kentucky, uh, Sister Elaine Prevalet with the Sisters of Loretta community, who I send a lot of my uh, friends to who are in some crisis or another. She's the retreat director there. And I just haven't come across anybody with the, with the gift of wisdom and discernment that she has. And you might seriously think about going up to visit with her. I don't know what you will get out of it, but I think it would be meaningful. And so Martha and I talked about it after Lacey left and we called her and went up to visit with her uh, uh, three weeks later. And that was sort of the, well, one, the beginning of our odyssey. But uh, I mean, in the meantime, I was trying to, I was, searching for books. I was searching for any information on what we were facing. Uh, I had begun a, um, a, a journal, a handwritten journal, um, not, not for any, quote, spiritual reasons, but just to, I had so much information coming at me that I just, I just needed to write it down and look back to it, back on it and refer to it and and that was just very helpful over the course um, of the 17 years that we went through as we lived with Alzheimer's. Yeah, Martha I would died. love the suggestion that any person who's new to caregiving would keep a journal. I think of it's a common thread that a lot of us feel really thrust into it suddenly and have a lot of information at once to process in that way. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. a great suggestion well, I, I, for most people. It's, it's hard to keep it all in whenever you, you just got all medical information, health information, uh, spiritual information, emotional information. Uh, how are you feeling, Carlin? And, and one of the, one of the, I, at first it was a side benefit, but one, a direct benefit was whenever I would be writing something and having some observation and, and that seemed to be a particularly good insight, I would, um, copy those pages and send them to our two children in college and to our daughter who was here at home, give her a copy of it too, just to let her read and know where my mind was, my head was, and where we were in sort of this unknown, uh, um, whatever, it, 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 it would it, very painful kind of future. I mean, we didn't, we had no idea what our future would be other than we were told that there's just no way out of this. And, and that was very difficult to accept. But I mean, Martha was headstrong. I was headstrong. We didn't accept no way to get out of this. And, um, and so, and that, that, that was one of the first things, one of the things that this sister Elaine, uh, pointed out to me and to Martha when we were talking to her. She said, you know, you might want to check out the difference between willfulness and willingness, between being willful and, be, and being willful, willing. And I had no idea what she meant. Excuse me. But she, she was pointing out, you both come across to me as being pretty stubborn folks. And you just need to be open to sort of where you're going to go with this thing. So we had a great visit with Sister Elaine. She was uh, very kind to us and 
Martha was the key thing. Martha was very comfortable with her and very comfortable talking with her as well as I. And um, so that, that really was the beginning of the path that we found ourselves on. And, and that's the reason I titled my book, A Path Revealed, How Hope, Love, and Joy Found Us Deep in a Maze Called Alzheimer's. Um, our, my book is not a caregiver's guidebook. There are plenty of those out there. Th- this turned out to be the, a spiritual odyssey that we found in ourselves on and how we had to deal with this at a both deeply emotional, psychological way rather than just being totally burned to a crisp. And, um, and that can really happen with caregivers in particular. Uh, uh, unfortunately, the statistics are rather tragic about the number of caregivers who may be who, who may die before their spouses uh, who are caring for someone with this kind of illness or disease. I mean, they just are wits in and that's totally understandable. And it's, uh, but it was very important for us and for me and for our children to feel like that uh, we were loved, we, that there was support, uh, not just from fellow human beings, but from quote God above and uh, and I, I mean, I, I, our tradition is out of the cr- Christian tradition, and uh, but it, it, whatever tradition anybody is in, it's really important to find support from something beyond yourself. I, that's one of the things I've discovered. Um, the probably the greatest gift that I received during this seventeen years, Lisa, was when our, when David and Rachel, our two oldest children came home from college, I mean, returned home from college after they graduated, they came to me and said, Daddy, we would like to give you a weekend, a month off. And um, I was stunned. Um, and um, and I, I said, really? And the, the, they said, yeah, we won't. And so the, they took care of Martha during that weekend. And I, I typically went to a nearby monastery um, it, it had spiritual value for me, but I, I could get out of the orange groves and yell and vent and rant and go running and go jog, walking and, and kid around with the brothers who were up there and, and the like. And so it was just a great kind of a relief place for, for me. That does sound and, amazing. And, and, and that? that does sound amazing and really brilliant of your kids to realize uh, that it would be helpful for them to come to you and offer a respite. Uh, yeah. I did not ask them. I, I did not initiate that. They, they initiated that. Uh, the other thing in relation to that, they had to grow up real quickly. So suddenly their roles were reversed. They were the parents taking care of Martha uh, and, and about this time that they did this, Martha. And what ages were was, they actually? They they just gotten out of college. David had been out of college a couple of years, and Rachel had just come home from college, graduating from college. Young adults. And yeah, yeah. But still, they had to grow up a good bit, 
um, they'd never been had a role reversal like that. And um, so there's just a, a lot of things along the way. I mean, there were some very hard moments during this time, Lisa. I mean, the first hard moment was just getting the news of this diagnosis. Uh, another hard moment was when I had to take Martha's car keys away. Uh, she had run through a, a, a stoplight and um, nobody was hurt, or, but she didn't know that she had run through a stoplight. And, and I just felt like I had completely betrayed her. She ran up to her when I did that. She ran up to our bedroom and I went back and back into a room and downstairs in her house. And I think both of us just cried. I just felt like I was a traitor. Um, another hard moment was when Martha was still living at home and she was at home, she was at home for about a decade before we had to move her into a memory care facility. It is a long time. And, uh, hmm? It is a long time. Yeah. Uh, the um, uh, hard moment was when uh, Martha uh, had a seizure. I had never seen anybody in a full body seizure. I was downstairs fixing breakfast and I heard this thud upstairs ran up and Martha was there on the floor curled up and just shaking all over. And I just had, I, I, I hadn't, I didn't know what to do. I, I, it seemed like it went on forever. It was probably one minute or two minutes, but uh, that still was a, a very nerve wracking, um, a very nerve wracking um, uh, situation. So my daughter has, uh, epilepsy. And, um, I can definitely remember for the first time that she had a seizure. And prior to that, I hadn't witnessed anybody have one either. And I remember she was quite young and I remember, um, picking her up from her crib and calling the pediatrician at first. And the receptionist went to put me on hold and I took another look at my child and I was going, there's no way I should be waiting for assistance with this. I called, hung up and called 911 and something like that can be very, very shocking and very scary. It is. Um, for the can be, it is. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that was, um, an intense experience for me and I can understand probably most people witnessing a seizure, um, for the first time it would be. I guess the other other thing that was just very, very hard was moving Martha into a memory care facility. Yeah. By that time, by that time, Martha was not able to take care of herself. She wasn't able to feed herself. She wasn't able to walk and was unable to talk. And so it was it was time to get her beyond our means of being able to care for for Martha. Um and so, um, one one of the things that we learned from Sister Elaine, or that she gave us a tip on, was she said before we left her early on in, in the stages of this, uh, she said you might want to check out meditation. And uh, I had never tried to meditate, and um, for goodness, I. I, I we were Presbyterians, and Presbyterians don't meditate. 
And uh, that's something the Far East, the, the times have changed since then, I know. But back then, and uh, we we came back, and I didn't know where to turn on something like this. And I asked Lacey, our, our minister friend, if he knew anything about meditation. I was really surprised, being a Presbyterian minister, that he did. And he pointed us to a... Uh, Benedictine monk by the name of John Main, M-A-I-N, who he says his approach is very simple and very authoritative, and you might want to just check check that out. And that was just that was just very helpful for us, Lisa. Um, we began to we began to meditate. I, I did with Martha before I went went off to work, um, and um, we would meditate for 15 or 20 minutes saying I would quietly repeat our word. I would hold her hand and quietly repeat our word and then we'd do it in the evening before we go to bed. And we were That sounds like such a sweet there. thing as a couple. <laughs> yeah. Well, what happened, uh, I didn't know where this was going to go, but I, I, Martha's anxiety level began to go from way over the top down and come down into a very um, manageable kind of level. And mine did too. Um, and um, I, I remember going into Menorah Manor where the member care unit was that Martha was in. And would often, as I, when I'd go in, she often would be in her chair or in her bed, curled up in a fetal position. And there was just anxiety just sort of emanating from her. And I, I, at those times, I would uh, often just sit down beside her and slip my hand into hers and begin to meditate again. And she often just, her body would unfurl, unfold, straighten out. And she either went to sleep or looked out the window or looked at me in sort of a distant kind of a way. And and just a peace began to settle over the room. And that that was all very helpful for what we were going through at the time. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And it sounds like um, an example of, of such a beautiful part of the experience of being someone's caregiver. Um, and well, yeah. Um, would you say that that has continued to have an impact on your life going forward? Well, I'm, I'm uh, we started. We started this. It'd be 26 years ago now. Yeah, I'm still meditating and uh, continuing to. And uh, just it's not a one-off kind of a deal. Uh, it's it's just for me. It's very important. A lot of people don't understand it. Who know that I do meditate? They, they. I don't try to explain it to them. But, um, um, but yeah, that is it's still very important to me. And. Um, the, um, I, I think one other thing I would point out, as we went through along this path that kept unfolding for us, one mentor after another began to show up, Lisa, and, and not, not at my initiative. Hmm. I wasn't, we had, um, uh, friends up in Birmingham who who was a, a dean of an Episcopal church there 
And uh, they put us in touch with a uh, an Anglican priest out in out in um, uh, Australia, and he had a quote healing ministry. And, and she, I remember Mary, our friend, saying, "Carlin, would you be interested in talking to him or whatever?" And I said, "Well, I'm I'm not real big into healing ministries, but as long as he's not handling snakes or anything like that, <laughs> I, I'll be glad to talk to him." And um, um, and that, that relationship grew and developed to the point at one point, I guess it was shortly after Martha had her seizure that I went out to Sydney to visit with Jim Glennon, this Anglican minister, just to get a better sense of what he was doing and who he was and, and the like. And that was, that was an important trip for me anyway, as it related to what we were going through with Martha. Uh, but I had other mentors just arise. Um, our, our sister-in-law was very key in our, in our, in our path. Her name is KK. And uh, at one point, uh, probably three years, two to three years into this, um, uh, I, I had to start getting a caregiver to come in and be with Martha in the house during oh. the day while I went to work. But Martha kept rejecting caregivers. She, she didn't think she needed this. And so, but KK came up with the idea, bless her. Um, she brought, uh, she brought, quote, Trisha in to call Martha up and said, Martha, I've got this friend, Trisha. I want you to meet her and want to go out to lunch with her. And Martha was very close with KK. And, um, and so Martha said, of course, be glad to. And so they did that a couple of times. And after that, Trisha was Martha's good friend. And then Martha was willing to be with Trisha alone with Trisha. And that just helped us get through that. Another thing that KK did was she call, uh, called Martha and said, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm getting into a watercolor painting class. And would you be interested in joining me with this? And I had never, I was very surprised when Martha said yes, other, other than I knew that she wanted to be with KK. Uh, but I had never seen Martha do anything that quietly and privately. She liked tennis. She liked hiking. She liked politics. She liked the high energy stuff. And, and, and Martha just, she bought into that before, before she got into that, Martha's confidence level had gone from way up here down into the floor and it was not coming back. And uh, she was very passive and whatever else. And, but as she got into this watercolor painting class, I saw her confidence blossom again. And I've heard, I've heard this kind of a story from a, a number of folks, either with art or with music or with dance, just if that's something that they had been doing, uh, in, in the in the past, which Martha had not been, but it, it just it opened up something inside of Martha. Uh, and I remember her. Art sure, there are fields in. specifically of art therapy, music therapy, and a lot of people don't realize that. Um, yeah. Where specifically intentionally, these creative modes are used even to accomplish physical therapy goals or speech therapy goals or things like that. Exactly. That's exactly, well. and it just um, 
And, and Martha did some stunning pieces. I mean, it wasn't just sort of throw it up on the wall. I mean, just her um, teacher came to me and said, Carlin, I do not know where this coloration is coming from. I cannot teach that. Nobody can teach this. This is coming from somewhere deep. And, Beautiful. Um, so, yeah, it just, and that lasted about maybe three years and then it just faded away. And uh, we moved on to whatever we moved on to at, at that point. Um, so it's, it's anybody who is going through this with parents, uh, with s- siblings, with uh, grandparents, they know as well as I know that it is not an easy path. It's a hard, hard path. And I'm sure as you've found out some with your daughter, it's just the, the whole mindset adjustments you have to go through. And I mean, the mindset with Martha was, I learned there's no need to try to argue with Martha. I mean, whatever she said, it was right. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have, I stopped trying. I tried to initially, but I stopped trying to correct Martha if she was making wrong statements. Sure. Because what's the use? Like, (laughs) what's that? What, what would be the use of, of getting into those kind of arguments? Um, But I'm sure it would be natural to want to correct. And well, we wanted to, I mean, heck, I've been a perfectionist by heart. <laughs> I had to learn that that just does not work. Yeah. And um, I remember Rachel, our daughter, uh, second child, um, came to me after she came home from college and, and just complaining. She says, I just, uh, I, 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 I don't know, I can't connect with mommy. I, I don't know how to connect with her. And she told me later, I don't remember saying it, but she told me later is that it was just very helpful when I uh, said, well, Rachel, you need to step into your mommy's world right now mm-hmm. and to understand, try to understand what she's thinking and feeling uh, rather than making her operate in what has been a normal world for all of us all this time. And, and that, that was a very, uh, when I learned, learning that lesson for me was very helpful. It was very helpful for Rachel as well. And um, so, yeah, I've heard similar messages from uh, disability self-advocates that um, very much feel like, um, hey, why? And, and, and very rightfully, why is it always my job to try to fit into your world? Why don't you share my world? Which makes yeah. a lot of sense. Well, I mean, but Martha was not able to verbalize that other than she just became stubborn or lashed out or yeah. whatever else. And um, But so there are obviously a number of things that you learn to get through. Um, I think just changing course just a little bit um, it, from a financial point of view. Yeah. Um, um, when Martha, uh, it was, it was not, I, I was fortunate that I had this magazine that I'd started and, and it was producing me some profit and some money. And I was fortunate to be able to get Tricia and another caregiver to come in during the day with Martha. 
a lot of people are not that fortunate. I understand that. But uh, when we move Martha into a nursing home, into a member care facility, uh, I would be broke today if I had to have paid for that. Yeah. Uh, in Florida, I was working with an elder care attorney who helped walk me through the steps so that Medicaid here in Florida paid for Martha's time in the nursing home. Yeah. Which during that, those days, it was seven to $8,000 a month. And, and I just, you I can was, only imagine how much has gone up. Uh, oh, yeah. M- m- yeah. A- a- absolutely. So it's, it's very important to get a good elder care attorney to help tell you what your options are and show you what your options are when you, when you're having to move into that kind of a heavy financial burden. Um, and I'll be Well, and it, it depends because some states are easier to navigate on your own than others. Um, but yeah, to understand that, uh, you probably do have rights to something like that. And if it takes getting an attorney involved, then, then to use one. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very important. Well, I mean, if you can, if you can do it with, I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out and do it. Yeah. I just. Again, some States are easier to navigate than others. Yeah. And and it's not, this is not just a retirement attorney, not just a, uh, an attorney, uh, uh, who handles um, handles your trusts and wills? This needs to be a quote elder care attorney mm-hmm. if if you need to find somebody like that. And uh, not all not all of them are good. I just happened to have found a real good one that helped us get through that. So you know, th- there's a lot more in our story um, and a lot more that we could talk about. Um, but that gives a whole sense of. In 1997, she was diagnosed. This went on for 17 years. That is a long, long time. Uh, I don't know. How old is your daughter now? Mm, 21. So I've been at this 21 years plus two years before that, that I had a typically developing uh, okay. elder child. Right, so that, yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's, it's a long haul. So I, I just make a reference, uh, Lisa. I've, I've had a blog that I'm... I've written since 19, um, since when, since two, 2015, mm-hmm. and it's under my name, yeah. Carlin Maddox, C-A-R-L-E-N-M-A-T-D-U-X.com. Yeah. And my book can be found on Amazon if they're interested, A Path Revealed. Excellent. With, I'll put those links my- in the show description. It's time for a break. Please stay right here, and we will be right back. Thank you for sticking around. We continue our conversation. One of the things that I'm really interested in about is you ran a business while caring for your spouse. And you've mentioned that your magazine was part of the reason you were uh, okay financially. So um, what are... Sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, it would still be a struggle. Um, What are some of the... um, things that you learned about navigating between both those worlds of being a caregiver and running a business? Um. Um, well, 
uh, obviously the obvious priority is Martha was coming first. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a staff of about 10 people that I could depend on, not completely by any means. I still was the face of our magazine and had to be out around in the community and the like. Uh, but uh, I, I need to stay real attuned to, well, during the day when we did have caregivers coming in, uh, just to stay attuned to any calls and just if I were on the phone to a client or something, I just had to excuse myself and just and say, I'll be back to you. I've, I've got to take this call and whatever. So especially that, from that from my perspective, um, as a mom of a child that had extra needs, um, I hear a lot of people talk about this kind of thing as if the mom can take those calls for a business or something unrelated to their kid at the same time as their kids are there. But I will point out that you're talking about having other caregivers with you while you needed to run your business. Well, yeah. I mean, it it was, it was three, three, maybe four or five years before we had a caregiver come into the house. Yeah. Okay. So, so, uh, oftentimes I would have, have Martha wanted to do this. Uh, she would just come into my office and just hang out there. Sure. And, and um, or, it, and, and she, she drove, she can she continued to drive for two to three years after her diagnosis. So she was uh, still quasi independent. So also with a realistic view of what the actual care needs were and whether, she was comfortable and it was appropriate and safe for her to be sitting there while your attention wasn't fully with her necessarily. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and she, she was good friends with some of our staff members. And so she would chat with them some and, and the like. So that was, and it was, as a, it's a, it was a small staff. So it wasn't a big time corporate staff or anything like that, that made it, made that um, workable. The, um, uh, in, in terms of um, time, um, we would we, we would go in the, up in the when the kids were coming up as kids, we had bought a summer cabin up in North Carolina way back in 1980, and uh, it was just for a summer cabin. It wasn't a year-round thing, and 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 the kids grew up going there. Martha grew up in this place as a kid growing up there. So that was, that was very important to her as well. Uh, I would, um, I would back when things were normal, I would drive up with Martha and then fly on back home and be there for four or five weeks or six weeks or so while she was there with the kids. But when things after Martha's diagnosis, I would wind up staying up there with her and handling a lot of, a lot of business, from there, but and this was this was free email and whatever else. So our email was just coming into existence, and I I've been slow on the digital pickup. So I, I'm sort of a dino, dinosaur with all that was at the time. Uh, but um, you, you just you just have to figure out what works and what doesn't work, mm-hmm. and if it doesn't work. Just don't worry about it. Keep trying something else. 
uh, how to, in terms of how to, how to balance your time, your energy, um, for a, few, a couple of years, Martha was still able to hit the tennis ball with me and we would, we would go out and hit the tennis ball together. And, um, we wouldn't get into heavy, heavy competition during that time like we used to, but, um, so that more that just was, having fun was, then. Yeah. Just, yeah, just very light. Fun. Yeah. And, um, so it, it, you just have to, I guess all I'm saying is our story is our story, but people, I've gotten enough feedback that people pick up insights from our story even though their story is different yeah and and uh they can use whatever information they pick up and and apply it to their story or not but uh, they just and it's it's important and it was important for me to write this book just to be able to tell our story um and it's important i think that's an important thing it, it was a, it was an important grieving process. I wrote the book after Martha died in 2014, and it was an important um, grieving process for me. Um, by the time that I started to write the book or think about writing the book, this journal of mine had turned into 17 volumes over the years. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, I, I need to go back and look through this thing to sort of help me formulate what path I'm going to take with this book. And, uh, and when I cracked, I hadn't cracked it open in in a while. What I did, I just said, Oh, this is wrong. I don't know if I can go back into all this, but I ultimately got over that. And, uh, it really helped me. Um, it really helped me in the grieving process. I I didn't understand it at the time, but in in hindsight, it, it was a very helpful tool. Uh, to uh, just get me through this grieving process. Mm-hmm. So I think learning over time, um, it seems like also like the journal really helps with noticing how your perspective has changed over time and what you've yeah. learned or started to do differently. Yeah, just out of out of curiosity, do you keep a journal or are you keeping? <laughs> I've been very irregular about one. <laughs> in yeah, the- well, I understand. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, uh, and it, it, it it takes a certain discipline. I mean, I whenever I could find time after Martha would go to bed or whatever, I'd just say, and I wouldn't do it on a daily basis. It's just when something came along that seemed important for me to get down to process. Um, that I would that I would write into it. It wasn't something that okay today I'm going to write this, the next day I'm going to write that, and whatever. Well, it wasn't that kind of a situation by any means. Uh, but I'm I am a, a journalist and a writer by trade and whatever else, so that was that was very helpful. But I I wasn't trying to write journalistically. I mean, I was trying to report what I was feeling and seeing. And, sure, much and more sensing. personal. Yeah, and. Um, and, um, but uh, certainly wasn't editing everything to be uh, journalistically approved by any means. It's just, you just, you learn, if anybody has perfectionist tendencies, you just learn 
that's out the door. Mm-hmm. You just forget that. <laughs> and um, Some of us, it takes uh, a long time <laughs> to decide it's okay to be <laughs> imperfect. <laughs> well, it did me. It did me. And, and, and when your back is against the wall, though, you, um, you just you say, well, this isn't working. And we would, I would hit my head against the wall a number of times, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know how many books I went through. Some of them really, there were not many caregiver guidebooks regarding Alzheimer's back then. There, there are plenty of good ones out today. Um, but um, I just, I read a lot of different kinds of books that seem to have some tangential importance to what we were doing in that. And how we were doing it, and um, so um, you just need to do your own kind of research, your own kind of where are we going with this. Um, I, our our neurologist was very empathetic, very sympathetic, but he, along with many neurologists, don't understand the. Um, pressures on a caregiver. Right. right. And, and they're very um, focused on the patient that has oh, yeah. the Alzheimer's. In, ter- in terms of, in terms of the uh, uh, specific medical issues as it relates to yeah. the person. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, I, I looked for a, a support group early on, but did not find one. So my support group turned out to be our kids. It turned out to be these mentors that seemed to show up out of nowhere from time to time. Um, and uh, Tricia, who came in as a caregiver for, for Martha during the day, and um, uh, just it's, it's, you just had to, have to just sort of take it a step at a time. And that's sort of a cliche, I don't know, but um, you just got to be open to that. Yeah. I, I, I like to plan. I mean, having the business that I did, I like to try to plan and budget and whatever else. Well, that's it. That was just out the, out the door. <laughs> so, so contrary to my training. When it comes to disability and illness, that's very true. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Um, and yet there's ways that those kind of things have to interact with each other. Like in my experience, <clears throat> I learned a lot about planning and organization and so forth um, in my role as a, a parent caregiver um, because there was such a high volume of different types of providers, medical providers my daughter was involved in. And then there was the school separately and IEPs to go to for that and things like that. And then there were social services that um, could offer different things to our family, but it took administrative work on my part. And so I learned a lot about that kind of organization. And now I'm a business owner based on that experience, um, actually as a caregiver. So they do kind of play back and forth. And I think it's a universal in life that, uh, like really it's so valuable to make flexible plans and to make your plans, but understand then stuff's going to happen. That's the key. Flexible. Yeah. I mean, 
I guess what I was referring to is making plans that we didn't we didn't waver from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. And and um, so yeah, and that kind of planning for me and to and, and I, I was being a bit facetious of not doing any planning. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and being just totally ad hoc, but um, it, it, again, it, it it was experiment. It's been it was experimental all, all along the way. As I kept getting input from people and insights from people, and, and just trying to figure out our way through this whole whole mess. That makes a lot of sense. Um, thank you very much. Um, I think we'll wrap it up and um, would you share one more time where people can uh, come and find your materials online or interact or reach you? My, my website is um, www.carlinmaddox, C-A-R-L-E-N-M-A-D-D-U-X.com. And I have a, a blog on there that they can access and, and go go deep on uh, all the way back to 2015 when I started it. Uh, and I it, it was a, the the blog is about our story, but I also interview a number of other people who have had to deal with Alzheimer's or some form of dementia, and they had and, and it was good to get those buried stories into uh, our audience. Um, That's a fantastic then, resource. Yeah. Hmm? It's a fantastic yeah. resource to to hear stories this way. Yes. Yeah. And then the book is can be found on Amazon or some other online stores. Uh, again, the book is A Path Revealed, uh, How Hope, Love, and Joy Found Us Deep in a Maze Called Alzheimer's. And you can go to that title or go to my name again and find it on on um, Amazon. So th- those are the two key entry entry points to where we are and what we what what we went through. Thank you. Been fun. I've enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, I appreciate it. This is Love Doesn't Pay the Bills. I'm Lisa Chudy. You can find me on your favorite podcast app.